So once again, we're in John chapter 4, and we're finishing off the chapter today with this beautiful narrative of what Jesus can do and what Jesus, most importantly, is. It's not just what Jesus does that's important. It's what he, what, who he is. And so the basic function of this introduction is to the main story, to set up a setting. This story that we read earlier is transitional information between what Jesus uh, was doing in the south of Judea and what he's doing now. So I want you to pay close attention to that. And let me read for, to you the beginning of this section once more in verse 43. I want you to read the following introduction. After the two days he departed to Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Verse 46 again. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine in a Capernaum, where there, there was an official whose son was ill. So we'll stop there as an introductory section to bring our attention to what Christ is doing. We've seen him go south to Jerusalem and then come back all the way north. And what he was doing in Jerusalem basically was his hometown, his birthplace in Judea, down by Bethlehem. And while he was ministering there and showing everything that he was doing and who he was, especially in the purification of the temple, now Jesus returns. And Jesus returns to what we can call his main hometown because that's the center of his activity where he begins to do a lot more work than in Judea at the beginning of his life. What we get here in chapter 4 is very important because it closes off for us the section of Jesus' initial ministry. Up until this point, we've been introduced through the baptism of Jesus. In chapter 1, we, we know that Jesus is God because he is the logos, the logos that comes from heaven. He is the word of God. And in chapter 2, we see his miraculous power begin to take effect at, at, at Cana. And he, he presents himself as the life giver in chapter 3. So up until this moment, we see Jesus beginning ministry now come to an end. And after this, Jesus will then be saying and preaching who he really is. After this is when we get the words of Jesus that become very offensive to everybody else. At the beginning, Jesus's ministry is much loved. I mean, he's a miracle worker. He heals people. It, it, it's very interesting, and he is very intriguing to those who are curious. That's why we read in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes close to him because he wants to figure this guy out. Who is this miracle worker? And people come close to him. John the Baptist's disciples, as we read in chapters 2 and 3, they're intrigued by Jesus because of what he can do. So what he's doing at the beginning of his ministry is once again affirming his God-given power because he himself is God. 
That's who he is. But it's coming to an end. At this point, from here on on, this last narrative that we just read is a transition to what he will be preaching for the rest all the way up to chapter 12. And then we go into the passion section of John after, after chapter 12. So this transitional element is very crucial and very important. And what we read here at the beginning is this introdu- introduction of characters that we're going to read and be reading about within this narrative. What we know here is that Jesus left Samaria and headed north toward Galilee, the location where Jesus was most active. It's interesting that Jesus was not active mainly in his beginning of his ministry in Judea, which is where he was born. He's up north towards the Sea of Galilee. But this is an awesome connection between Samaria and Galilee. It's important. They are part of the mission, his mission, to save the world. It, it, it's, it helps us to stress the fact that Samarians or Samaritans were very much hated by the Jewish people. And so the fact that we get Jesus spending time in his hometown at the very beginning by going to the temple, now we see him going through Samaria as we read last week and we had that wonderful exposition with Pastor Henry explain to us what that was when he met with the Samaritan woman in Samaria. Now he's going back to the Jewish nation in Galilee and speaking to them. But what's important here is that he is spending time with distinct or different people. We have three sets of people. The Jews, when he picks the, his disciples, were the immediate people that began to be part of his ministry. The second group that we encounter are the Samaritans, which are, which are basically hated, as we mentioned. But they represent the Gentile world. Jesus isn't exclusively for the Jewish nation, as the Jews had anticipated, as the Jews wanted Jesus to be. They thought, Jesus is for me. Jesus is for Israel. Jesus is only for us. And Jesus, as he walks through to Galilee, through Samaria, he preaches and shows differently. Jesus is not only for the Jews. Jesus is for everyone. And therefore, we read that wonderful verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. It's about everyone, not exclusively the Jewish nation. But what's interesting is that Jesus also confronts in chapter 3 Nicodemus. We read about Nicodemus and we studied that conversation of new life with Nicodemus. And so what, he is, what Nicodemus represents then is this religious elite. So Jesus not only spends time with his people, not only spends time with the outcasts of society, with the Samaritans, but he also preaches directly to the pharisaical system, the religious elite of the time. Because religious people, friends, religious people need Jesus. They need to hear God's word. Religious people think that they have it made based on their religion. And Jesus will teach otherwise, especially in the next couple of chapters, that religion doesn't save as he told Nicodemus in chapter 3. So Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for the world. However, in this story, in verse 44, he has 
we, we see John, the author of the gospel, give us an important side note. In John chapter 4, verse 44, read it with me again. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. This is a parenthesis. This is a side note from the author. What he could be reminding us of is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. What this implies is that Jesus was well aware of how people perceived him. No honor was the people's failure to identify who Jesus really was. This continues the rejection theme that we've been studying ever since chapter 1, where people or the darkness rejects the light. People will reject Jesus. Everyone thinks that Jesus is cool and Jesus is okay and, and, and Jesus is all love and, and anyone would love Jesus, but that's not true. Because once Jesus opens his mouth and reveals who he is and most importantly reveals who you are and who I am, people are like, oh, hold on, I thought you were all about love. That's when we begin to see the hiccups. And that's why this transition is so important because this is where we begin to see Jesus to be hated. Jesus will end up, people are going to want to stone Jesus as we trek through John chapters 5 and on. So this rejection theme is very well understood by Jesus himself. That even in the place where he does most of his ministry work, which is Galilee, and that's why they consider Galilee the hometown. It's not referencing Judea where he was actually born. It's referencing Galilee, the northern part where he spends most of his time. If, if you recall, we'll, we'll, we'll read a little bit about Capernaum, but Capernaum is up in the north. And that's primarily where Jesus and his disciples were spending most of their time, except when they would go down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus is referencing that, not his birthplace in Judea. And this is an important contrast. This Judea. Judea in the south and Galilee in the north is a contrast not only geographically, they're more than 30 miles apart, and one's all the way down here and one's all the way up in the north, but the contrast is that by Galilee, the Samaritans understood who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. The people that the Jewish nation had rejected. The people that lost their Jewish roots and began to mix with other Gentiles and became Samaritans, uh, they were hated. But when Jesus was there and he spent two days there after he, he gave the Samaritan woman that wonderful talk, he spent two days with the Samaritans and they said to him, this man is a prophet. They believed him. They accepted him as who he was. He didn't do any miracle there. He didn't raise the dead in Samaria. He didn't walk on water. He didn't fly. He didn't show some miraculous event in Samaria. Yet, because Jesus spoke directly to the woman and told her her sin and he exposed her, but then she came to this realization 
that he was a prophet. When she goes and tells all the people in the town, they come to him and they ask him, Jesus, spend more time with us. Jesus spends two days with them before we come into our story. And, he, and right there is where the Samaritans say he is a prophet. The Samaritans understood who Jesus was, not his own people. His own people in Galilee didn't know who he was. And this becomes heightened and becomes a, a kind of outline for us with this verse in chapter, in verse 45, we see this superficial welcome. Once again, put your eyes on verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So this seems kind of contradictory, right? In, in verse 45, it says, no, he does, no prophet is known in his own hometown. And if he's referencing Galilee, it says they welcomed him. So is Jesus confused? What, what's, what's John trying to say about Jesus here? Well, friends, Jesus understands authentic welcome. Jesus understands and knows when people accept him for who he is or for what he does. So this welcome is rather superficial. It's rather uh, apprehensive at first. It was based off what they saw. If you read that closely, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. This references chapter 2, prior when Jesus is about to cleanse the temple. After they saw the amazing events, these, Gal these Galileans were like, wow, this is pretty, this is pretty amazing. So based off what they saw, they welcomed and sort of believed. They saw in Jesus a person who had the ability to give them what they wanted. Not the prophet who knew their wicked hearts and could cleanse them from their iniquity. No, don't give us that Jesus. Give us a Jesus that, that can do cool things. So what John uses here to differentiate this type of welcome, and the reason why we could come to an understanding that their welcome was rather superficial, is, is found within the grammar itself. And I always point you back to the grammar because grammar isn't just for intellectuals. It, it helps us really understand what Jesus is trying to say. The word that John uses for acceptance or true acceptance or true faith is the word lambano in Greek. And this word is found, for instance, in John chapter 1, verse 12, when, when, it's, when it says, But to all who did receive him. This is the word lambano. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So right there, John uses this word to show that there are some people that truly accept him. And those people that truly accept him, lambano, that truly bring him in, are those who are given the right to be called children of God. However, in verse 45, this welcome is another word. It's dekomai. Here, Jesus is welcomed only. It is tentative. 
It isn't Lambano where they accept him by, by the prophet he is. It is rather a type of welcome that sees Jesus for what he does and says, you're, you're kind of cool. You're, you're okay. You, we see what you, I see you. I see, I see what you've done. All right, so, you know, come on in. It's pretty cool. You can spend some time with us. We accept you. That's the type of welcome that the Galileans did in verse 45. And so, therefore, Jesus understands that they were not interested in him. They were interested in what he does. I love what one of the commentarians, uh, the people that write commentaries, writes. Uh, Leon Morris says about this verse it was dependent on the wonder arising from their sight of the signs, not on a realization that Jesus was indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. Their very acceptance of him was its own rejection, end quote. So what they did here was accept the works of Jesus, but not the person. And I'm, I'm repeating that consistently because it's going to drive our main point for the rest of this discussion. They were not interested in the Messiah, the anointed one, but rather the wonder worker, miracle maker, the guy who could give them what they want. In, in verse 46 now, it's the last verse of the introduction. Verse 46 highlights Cana of Galilee. It's another geographical location. It's, it's an important place where Jesus did his first miracle. You guys remember what the first miracle was in chapter 2? Where he converts the water into wine. He brings a celebration back to the wedding. And it's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. It's an interesting concept. This is where Jesus did his first miracle. And here we are introduced to another Galilean or who was part of the Galilean court, as the royal official. They call him the Basilikos. The royal official who, who served with great authority under King Herod's court, who most likely heard of the grand miracle of, in, in Cana when he turned the water into wine. He probably heard about this great miracle. And like the crowds of Galilee, he himself wanted to see this wonder worker. Why did he want to see him? Why did he cross this difficult terrain of the Galilean hills all the way from Capernaum, which is about 16 miles away and, and almost at sea level? He had to go through all these hills, climb up all the way to Cana where Jesus was based off what he heard. Why? Because he had a need. Here we have a man who has a need. Who can help him? Well, there's this guy walking around Galilee. There's this guy who a couple of, of, of weeks ago, months ago probably, he, I heard that he turned water into wine. Might as well give him a shot, right? I mean, he did do that amazing miracle, and we've been hearing a lot about him. I think he's the guy that was down south in Jerusalem that caused havoc down there in the temple. Hey, let me give this guy a shot. So I have a need. My need is my son is dying. Let me go up to this guy and see what he could do. So the second section that we encounter here is the section between verses 47 through 50. 
We have the introduction, the presentation of geography and the characters and this transitional element and how the Galileans really welcomed Jesus, but at a superficial level. In section two now, we have the royal official. Here we have this man of authority coming to Jesus because he has a need. This desperation of this man comes from not from his royal position, but as from his domestic life as a father. We, all the fathers in the house, understand the desperation of this man. He pleads with Jesus to come down and heal his son who was about to die. So he presents his need as a helpless father with a dying son. But look how Jesus responds. In verse, 40, in verse 48, well, we'll start from verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea and Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, all right, stop there. Here we have a father. And as a father who has a dying son back home, As a father who has run, possibly with his posse, going all the way up the hill, struggling 16 miles, going forward to see this man, desperate. He probably didn't eat. He probably didn't stop anywhere along the way. He was desperate because he was a father. His son's dying. And he comes to you. You can imagine when he gets to Jesus, desperate. He's not before Jesus uh, in his grandeur, no, with his royalness and his authority. He's desperate before Jesus, probably out of breath as he gets to him. He probably even fell down because he was tired and he pleads with Jesus, help my son. And all of us would Even the world in general would be like, oh, well, Jesus would be nice and loving and, and, oh, I love you. And, yeah, don't worry. Look what Jesus says. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wow. Yeah, that's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. You, you begin to see the transitional elements here. In, in Cana, of, when, in chapter 2, he turns the water into wine and he brings joy to the celebration. Here, he says, unless you see, he's being rather sarcastic. He's being, he is responding with disdain, with a little bit of anger. And this is, Caused by the plural pronoun that he uses. See, Jesus isn't even talking directly to him here. When he says in verse 48, unless you, he's not pointing only at the Father. This is a second person plural pronoun, which means plurality of people. He's, say, he's pointing to everyone in Galilee. He's not pointing just to the man. So the man comes to him personally, and Jesus forgets about his personal encounter, and Jesus begins to speak to the plurality, to everyone, 
So what Jesus is saying is, man, you're just like everybody else. You're just like the rest of the Galileans who only come to me based off what they see. And that's why he says, unless you, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. All you people just want to see some, some miracle. That's all you desire. Signs and wonders for Jesus are not those that produce authentic faith. Jesus isn't worried about doing a miracle here. It's not that which provides faith. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person. This, this clause here in the grammar is a conditional clause, which means it's hypothetical. Only if you see, then you will believe. And Jesus is making this as a conditional statement, kind of saying, like, in reality, friends, you'll never believe. Even if you do see, you're only going to welcome Dekomai, as we mentioned earlier. You're only going to have a superficial welcoming. And we could always point back to the cross to prove Jesus' point. Because no one else was there that he did a miracle to. I mean, the, the Father wasn't even there when, he, when Jesus was crucified. So some sort of ocular, emotional stimuli must come, must occur in order to gather their attention. As if Jesus is only seeking to cause awe like some street magician. Because Christ knows their heart, as we read in John chapter 2 verse 24, he knows that the greater miracle lies in bringing them to life. However, because most people like hiding their darkness from the light, they are only satisfied by the miraculous. They say, wow, look at what he could do. Wow, look at those amazing works. I mean, that guy's amazing. Maybe you have Netflix and you've watched these, these shows about magicians and, and the people are like, oh. My God, that's amazing. How did you do that, bro? Show it. How did you do it? Reveal your secrets. And, and, and it's just amazing. And that's what these people were looking at Jesus as. As a simple street magician that could do something amazing. But that's not what Jesus was here to do. He didn't come here to, be, to make people go, oh, bro, did you see? He didn't come here for people to like take selfies with him and be like, wow, this guy's amazing. He didn't come here to show off. He came here to bring life. In our day... That is why many people come to Jesus. They seek results. That is why stadiums get filled when the famous faith healer comes to town or the famous prosperity preacher comes to town. Our emotional rush with conferences and coolness and hipness comes into our, into our emotions and into our bloodstream and it heightens us up and it gives us adrenaline because we are emotional and we become involved with everything around us and we're like, oh, this is so amazing, this is so cool, oh my God, I feel, I, I feel something here. I have this spiritual type of encounter which is experimental and emotional, but it isn't a spiritual change. It isn't what Christ has come to do. He didn't come here to raise our emotions and to give us wonderful experiences. 
You look at what is Jesus trying to do now then if we're suffering through 100 plus days of coronavirus? Like, what, what, what's this? Jesus doesn't come here to pr- prove himself as just a miracle worker. This religious experience is then the base of most people's Christianity. They want the experimental. They want the emotional because that's what satisfies. Hey, coming to church to, to feel motivated and to feel pumped and emotional. Oh, that was awesome. Man, I, we felt something different. It was, it was so cool. But then nothing happens in their life throughout the week. They still speak down to their wife. They still treat their kids with, with disrespect. They still cheat on their taxes. They still cheat at work. They still, they're still liars. They're still uh, people that, 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 are, that, are, that are just bad. Like, wh- what's the point? It's not... The experience, friends, and that's what Jesus is pointing to everyone there. You all just want signs and wonders, but that's not what I came to do. Jesus knows that they are not the true source of faith. So in verse 49, the official presents Jesus once more with his dying son. Little did he know he was a dead man speaking to the true life giver. He sought physical life for his son when, as a matter of fact, he should have been seeking for his own spiritual life since he was dead before Jesus. We look at this and we we see this man of authority, this man of position, this man of probably good wealth, this man that probably had other people serving under him, as we can see when his servants meet him halfway. This guy had servants, paid servants in most cases. They, this man could have easily gone to King Herod. Remember King Herod? This pompous guy that was so into himself that he wanted to make sure that even when this king came to town like Jesus in his infancy, he wanted to murder him. He, he was afraid. King Herod actually murdered his own wife thinking that she wanted to take his throne. This guy was like just full of himself. Why didn't the royal official go to King Herod? Why didn't he go to the king? Hey, king, you're the, you can do something for my son, right? I mean, I got money. I got power. I got authority. I got a fat bank account. I mean, what else do I need? But this man understood that no earthly king could do what he needed to be done. And so out of desperation, he comes to Jesus. But look, Jesus doesn't just answer the man with disdain and sarcasm. Jesus, in verse 50, says, go. He tells him, go. Then he says, your son will live. So here we have Jesus at the beginning being straightforward, calling him out who he really was, what he really is. But then he says, go. Your son will live. And even though you, you see this in our translations, like in the ESV, that translate this uh, as a future verb, he will Live, it's actually in the Greek in the present tense. So as soon as Jesus said, Your son will live, what what in the Greek, what he's actually saying is, Your son's alive, your son's living. 
he is in that moment that Jesus spoke the word, his son was alive. So as soon as Jesus said it, this man heard and he went. Contrasted to the death of his son and the dying nature of his son, look at what, look at what the man presents Jesus. Death. Look at what Jesus presents the man. Life. There's a contrast here. Every time you read scripture, look at the contrast. Look at the geographical contrast. Look at the authority contrast here. Even the King Herod and, and, and King Jesus. Look at the contrast there. And look at the contrast here with death and Jesus being the one who provides life. He says, go. Your son will live. This royal official was used to receiving orders from his earthly king. But here, before Jesus, he's receiving orders from King Jesus. That's why I love how Jesus, with an imperative verb, says, Go! Go! He's ordering this royal official to leave and to go. And the verse, fifth, verse 50 says, that he obeyed. He obeyed the words of Jesus. The verse says that the man believed. What did he believe? What sign did he have to believe? Remember when Jesus said, you, you guys all need signs and wonders. What sign was there? All Jesus did was say the word. What did he believe? Did he see that his son was alive? His son was about 16 to 17 miles away. There's no, there's no email. There's no Twitter. There's no direct messages. There's no text messaging where, where his servants could have been like, yo, dude, your son's alive. There's nothing. He's 16 miles away about a day's journey. What did he see? He didn't see anything. He believed the word from the word. He believed the logos from the Logos. Remember at the beginning of John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ only spoke the Word. And I loved how it's referenced here in this verse in the Greek again, Laga, where that Word came from the Word. And so the only thing that this man believed was the Word of Jesus, the Word of God. And so to close off this, this narrative, the third section we have here, the first section was an introduction between 43 through 46. Between 47 and 50, we have the second introduction with the conflict uh, going on. And now we have the closing remarks in verses 51 through 54. This is the third and final section of this brief narrative. His servants come to him. With the news that his boy was alive. So once this man leaves the presence of Jesus. Because he obeyed and believed and left. His servants come to him with the news. Your boy is alive. The fever has left him. And then he asks them what the timing of the event was. Why do you think he asks? He asks because he remembers the words Jesus said. Your boy's alive. So he, he's still kind of like, wait, okay, okay. When did it actually happen? 
Because just a little while ago, Jesus said these words, and, and, and now I kind of just want to like put two and two together, and if it was at the same time, then bam, I know that this is the Son of God. So he's asking, even with a little bit of uncertainty, but he's still showing the need of a spiritual rebirth. What he's asking about here is no longer about his son. He doesn't even ask him about the son. How is he doing? How does he look? Is he walking or is he still in bed? I mean, as a father, what would you do? As a father, you'd be like, oh my God, is he okay? So no, he's still breathing right. Everything's right with the brain. Did they take, did they get a, a scanner, an MRI on his brain? I mean, is everything okay? No, he doesn't even ask about his son. What is he asking? He's asking about the son of God. He's asking, well, what time did it happen? Let me just make sure. And they tell him and it coincides with the exact moment Jesus spoke the word. Verse 53, the official is now introduced, the basilicos that we read about, this man is for the first time introduced as a father. Look at verse 53 again. The father, this is the first time he's introduced as the father. Previously, he's just a man or the royal official. Now, the father knew, in verse 53, that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Jesus, or I mean, this father, knew that Jesus was God at this very moment. And not only him. But everyone in his household, by the simple word of God, just the word. I've encountered many people in, in our Spanish service and, and in other areas. And that all you guys do is just study scripture. That, that's all. That's, you guys just read your Bible all the time. Like you guys don't do like cool things and or do like these how you guys used to do it before. All we need is the word. That's why we, are, we stand with the reformers when they said sola scriptura. It's just the word. What else do we need? What else did this man need? For Jesus to like fly over there and, and to heal. Like he would have got the same results. All Jesus said was your boy is alive. That's it. Just his word. We as a church need to be conformed and formed and reformed by the word. Because it has power to change lives. This man believed not by a sign that he saw, but by the word of God. So our understanding, I have a question that, 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 that gets to me for the church is our, is our understanding of Jesus only shaped by the world around us? Questions that we need to answer. The Galileans were comfortable in this story thinking they knew who Jesus was. They thought they were healthy, but in reality, they were already dead. Therefore, Jesus speaks directly to them to offer them life. Another question that comes to mind when we read this story is, what is your faith rooted upon? 
only what Jesus can do for you? Is that it? Is that all you want to worship Christ for? Oh, he's, he's done this for me. He gave me a new job. He, 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 he healed my mom when, when she was going through her sickness. Uh, I, I had coronavirus, and I'm, I've been healed from coronavirus. And, and, and is that the only thing that keeps you faithful? Is that the only thing that remains, that keeps your faith strong by what Jesus has done? What about the millions of Christians that are being killed and are suffering daily all over the world? Like we, we kind of think of Christianity as a, the, a religion of the United States or a faith of the United States. But we forget that there's millions of, or of people, billions of people that, that are suffering daily. You go to South America, go to Central America, go to Asia. Go to the Middle East where, where Christians are being decapitated daily. What about them? Are they not to believe in Christ because they see that their father is being murdered? Their mother has been murdered and decapitated? Their sister's being raped? Is, is, is Jesus not with them? No. What we're saying here, our faith should be rooted upon the word of God. What keeps those people going and what should be keeping us going is God's word. Because trust me, friends, we're, we have it easy here in the United States. But it's looking like things are going to get a lot more difficult. This epidemic that we've been in, this, this weird four or five months of the beginning of 2020, it's kind of the precursor of what things are going to happen. It's only going to get worse for people of faith. It's not going to get any better. I mean, restaurants are being shut down. Uh, businesses are being shut down. I mean, people of faith are beginning to be persecuted here in the United States. So, so just, just hold on, okay? Just, just wait a minute. What's going to keep you going? What you think Jesus could do or the word of Jesus or Jesus himself as the person? Another question that comes to mind is how firmly are we committed to his word? Is it just something that we do on Sunday morning? Is it something that we occasionally do in the midweek Bible study? What, what part or what daily role does the word of God have in our lives? Does it have any? Is the first thing that we do when we wake up do we immediately just grab our phone and pop, pop up all the social media and then just lay in bed a little bit? Just, you know, you're waking up and you're laying in bed and, and, you're, and, you're, and the glare of the screen of your iPhone is, is waking you up and you're just scrolling and scrolling and liking and liking. Is, is that your main food source? What role does the Word of God have in your life? Do we need continuous manifestations, experiences to supplement our weak desire for the Word of God? In most cases, a lot of church people are like, man, it just feels, all you guys do is read the Bible. And I've had people leave church because of that. Because we only read the Bible at church and we only talk about the Bible. Are we more into the experimental, the emotional, or into God's Word? 
And so what this section ultimately teaches us, friends, is that only Jesus is the giver of life. The only thing that could give that boy life and in turn give his father and the household life was Jesus Christ. Not, not a sign, not a miracle in a, in, in a sense, even though that wasn't a, mirac- a miraculous event. It was the word that caused new life in the father and it was the word that caused new life in the Son. Be people of the Word. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, may your Word continuously be a lamp unto our feet, a light that guides us through all difficulty, through all moments of insecurity. Be with us during our time. Walk with us and shine your light upon us as we continue our life here on earth. Amen. Worship with us once more.